before I go further with the final portion to Midnight and the Meaning of Love, I want to speak on the languages that I attempt to read to my listeners, for my listeners, and um, anyone that's listening can hear that my first language, language I was born into speaking, is the American version of English. I am an American-born African woman, and while I do speak a little Spanish, a little Kiswahili, a little tree, I'm still learning those other languages. I haven't studied any Japanese, no Korean, so please forgive me for those whose primary language is either of those languages. And I'm putting forth this disclaimer because this final section of the book, part three in Korea, the language is challenging me. So I want you to keep that in mind and please be patient. Thank you. Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 3, Korean Drama, Chapter 2, By the Sea. Yimo and Omahani face same, Akimi said. She meant that her aunt, the woman we had both just met, and her mother, Ju Yun Lee, both had the same looking face. Omahani young, Akimi said. I took that to mean that her mother was younger than the aunt. We were vibing in our own way while riding on the top side of a convertible double-decker bus. The bus tour would take us around the whole of Busan, including Hyundai, Kwanganli, Siomyeon, Nampodong, Gwangpokro, and Jonggongdong, helping us to become more familiar with the city, which was the second largest city in Korea, Korea, and had more than three million people. It would stop at all their major sections, areas, and sites, giving us and the other passengers a chance to look around before loading up and visiting the site. Akimi chose to continue writing in kanji in her new hardcover diary. As she began sketching a picture of the woman who I now knew was her aunt, I thought to myself, maybe Akimi's mom was the younger sister. Or maybe because her mom died young, Akimi had a permanent picture in her mind of her mother as a young woman. I could feel my wife's mounting emotions while I was glad that she unexpectedly met her aunt and I could tell that they felt connected to each other instantly and immediately. I was feeling unsettled about how time was slipping away and then spinning out of control. Akimi had still not met her grandmother, who was the true reason for our arrival here in Busan. Her grandmother's hands were where the urn containing Akimi's mother's ashes needed to be delivered in order for the two of us to head back to New York. Now, we had agreed to return to her grandmother's apartment tomorrow night at 7 for dinner. I needed it all to run swiftly and smoothly, even though I was prepared to handle this matter with full respect and consideration to Akimi's mother and to Akimi's feelings. When our citywide bus tour finished, we returned to our motel, Baraka. 
just like its name, which meant on the sea, we were close to Korea's South Sea, only the sand was closer. The rooms were reasonably priced at 55,000 won per night, and we registered separately. Akimi went in first, and I entered afterward. We each had our own rooms. Since Akimi spoke Korean, her registration was swift. Mine required my passport before any other words could be exchanged. Then the question, military? And my explanation, no, I am not in the military. I'm a traveling student, pay as I stay. Before the registration card was slid across the desk for my signature. Secretly, we each gave the other copies of our room keys. This was the best way to raise the fewest suspicions in Korea, where everyone was interested in knowing what's going on, and where people's reactions showed up clearly on their faces. After today's fainting episode with Akimi's aunt, I was suspecting that it was not only race being considered here in Busan, but our ages. Before collapsing in the hallway, the aunt had uttered, Yolisut, which I knew, which I now knew meant 16. With the urn locked in the safe in my room, I unloaded all our new purchases. Of course, I got a Korean English dictionary and a Korean phrase dictionary also from a huge bookstore named Kayobu Books. I must admit, that even though I planned to learn some more Korean words than I already had from my travel book, after listening carefully all around town and in Akimi's grandmother's home, I was certain that it didn't matter if a foreigner saw a Korean language word printed out in the English alphabet. This language was distinct from Japanese and every other language I had ever heard or paid close attention to. Even if you knew the Korean vocabulary words, you needed to know how to sing each of them. Seriously. It was the same as if you had the printed lyrics to some hot-ass song, but didn't know the melody or the rhythm. I flipped open to the G page in my new dictionary. It didn't list the word gongpai. In the fabric districts of Busan, I had chosen and purchased the most elegant textiles from Uma and our company, Uma Designs. I thought the different textures and patterned cloths would open up a whole new arena of design for my mother. On that tour through Siomyon, I observed that Korea was trying to come up. Youth was rocking guest jeans, but their fitted and kicks was all bootleg. I saw an opportunity. My mind started thinking international trade, international styling. I got stopped on those streets more than a few times because of my style. One older sneaker store owner who spoke some English called me over and questioned me about my style. As he looked me over from head to toe, he had nothing but dollar signs in his eyes. I took his business card. It was the first in a series of business cards I had copped. Shit, I could show them how to rock it right, where to get it wholesale, and what to avoid. I could become that middleman from Brooklyn to Busan while they tried to catch up with the New York and hood fashions and get it right. 
I would be steady stacking my paper. That way, when they got too cocky and figured they needed to cut me out of the money-making deals, I'd already be paid, laced, and chilling. I picked up a few patches from underground vendors lined up against the subway walls. I was pushing around some ideas of redesigning some already dope jeans. I would lay it out for Uma, and she would make it happen. I had also selected seven silk scarves for my wife so that she could wrap up her beautiful hair. Now that she was back to wearing her badass diamonds and gold bangles and her diamond studs in her ears, I would make sure that everything else was concealed. While we were out walking, Akimi wanted to buy a diamond for her belly button, but I told her no in English. Anyo in Korean and Ai in Japanese. She was carrying our babies. Her belly button belonged to us, and if she wanted to pierce it for my pleasure, she could. After she delivered my sons, inshallah. The sun was beginning to set. I jumped out of my day clothes and into my black Nike sweatsuit and kicks. I put my wallet and my valuables in the safe and locked it. I grabbed my wool hat and a white washcloth and hit the beach outside my motel door. Running in the sand is more work than on stable flat ground. The traction requires more effort. It felt good though. The serene scenes of Busan offered a bunch of blessings that Brooklyn did not. The sky faded from lavender to deep blue. The scent of the ocean was refreshing, the opposite of the smell of the ghetto. In fact, as I ran faster than a jog but slower than a sprint, I said to myself, the ocean has a scent and a soul. As the waves rushed into the shore slowly and without force, pulling back very little as it left, I could feel the ocean was alive and breathing. It even had a natural voice that filled the air and bounced and echoed between their greened mountains and silhouettes of mountains. The ocean was peaceful, yet powerful. Unlike an MC, the ocean didn't need no mic. Unlike a DJ, the ocean didn't need a sound system. Still, everyone from a great distance could hear its voice, and when they did, it caused them to pause. The ocean made me feel something too. The great and deep moving body of water lay on my left side as I was running by, fasting and feeling thirsty. Miles away from my starting point, from Hyundai Beach to Kwang An Lee, I had reached an incredible Ferris wheel. It swung from the sky to the earth and around again. It made me think of my wife. My tongue felt like sandpaper now and my intestines felt dry like jerky. I bought four bottles of water from a beach vendor, along with two bananas. I stuffed my wool hat in my back pocket, dumped water over my head, cleaned my nose and my hands and my feet, and praised Allah. Slowly, I drank the three remaining bottles, my chest still heaving from the run. The sky was black now, jet black, and the unending line of lampposts lit up the gold sand, and the ferris wheel tossed around green light, and the boats set globs of yellow into the distance and over the blackened sea, and hundreds of red lights sparkled and outlined the far-off Hyundai Beach Pier. I followed the red lights home to my wife. 
Akimi was seated on the boardwalk under a lamppost on the steps that led to the sand that led to the water. Oddly, she was wearing an all-black Nike sweatsuit and black Chanel flip-flops with her hair wrapped in a black silk scarf. Of course, she had drawn a crowd who formed a semicircle around her as she sketched an elderly Korean woman who held her pose still as she sat on a small wooden stool. I was surprised. I knew Akimi didn't like poses. She normally liked to see and experience and feel something and then create from the images in her amazing memory. Glancing over shoulders, I saw my wife's pencil can was stuffed with pencils of every color and a thick stack of Korean wine. Less than 72 hours from docking on these shores and Akimi was already making money. Random youths in the crowd spoke to her. She answered back softly in what sounded like perfectly spoken musical Korean. She aroused me. In my room, I showered, dressed, prayed, and headed out. By then, my wife was seated downstairs in the small baraka lobby. As she saw me approaching, she stood and left. Outside the motel door, dressed now in a mini dress over pants with her hair wrapped nicely and her 100,000 yen heels, she looked up at me and smiled. Time for eat, she said in English. We walked outdoors, feeling familiar with our seaside surroundings. We mingled into the laid-back evening beach crowd, both relaxed and excited. I had a bunch of necessary Korean vocabulary words marching around my mind, mostly concerning foods. Even though Akimi is fluent, there were some things I had to know for myself. I was working overtime to separate the new Korean words from the recently learned Japanese words from the well-known English and native Arabic words. I knew I had to avoid pork completely and ask questions about noodles and soups that seemed vegetarian being stewed in pork fat or meats. The Koreans called pork dwajigogi, which bugged me out to remember and was even crazier to recite. Chicken was dakgogi. The food I was most likely to eat was fish. They called that sangsyonyori. I had to memorize these words since I hadn't come up on a halal food place yet. Stick to the sea, I told myself. We ate grilled fish and hukmi jumkobap, which was black rice made with dates, walnuts, and chestnuts. Mm. We shared a salad and both bit off of the long red hot chili pepper they laid in a dish on each table which made our already hot blood boil and our young hearts catch more feelings. Chapter 3. Foreign Family We were smarter today than the day before. We took a train most of the way and a taxi from the train station to Akimi's grandmother's apartment. We were both dressed sharply for Akimi's homecoming, and there was no sense in making her hike hills in her heels, bringing on a sweat. I left the urn in the safe. Akimi had gestured for me not to bring it. 
I was not certain why or what she had in mind specifically, but I cooperated. I was carrying a nicely threaded cloth shopping bag marked Shinshige. In it were gifts from Uma and me, as well as gifts Akimi had wrapped for her family. It was from both of our cultures to present gifts this way when visiting new homes or friends and family. There were many families outdoors, sitting, talking, children playing in front of the building. It was night, but the place was well lit. As we eased out of the taxi, everyone noticed. In the lobby, teens were speaking joyfully. As we walked through the doors, they stopped talking. This was nothing, I thought. I had entered buildings in East New York and Harlem and Bed-Stuy and Castle Hill and Soundview and Queensbridge where people were armed with way more than curiosity. As we got off on the eighth floor, there were already two ladies standing in the hallway. Akimi nodded to the two of them and they responded the same way. We rang the bell. I looked behind me. The peephole on the opposite door was blackened. I was sure that Grandpa had his eye glued there, observing. When Akimi's grandmother's apartment door opened, there were several people seated on the floor. A quick count. Three older men in around their 30s or 40s. Another male around maybe 20. Two male teens, two older women in their early 30s one teen female, and one girl toddler. The aunt was standing, holding the door and welcoming us in. We exchanged greetings in their language as we removed our shoes. Their low-to-the-floor table, much like the Sudanese table, was set with a feast. Each kind of food was set in its own dish. There were 24 separate dishes filled with an array of foods, including steaming soups, and fruits and rice with chestnuts and hot spicy cabbage which I had learned that they call kimchi and sliced radishes, cucumbers and carrots, boiled eggs and grilled beef. There was a teapot, teacups and bottled drinks as well as a serving dish piled high with fried chicken. There were two big fresh green watermelons. Each place setting had a silver a silver steel pair of chopsticks. Each place setting had a silver steel pair of chopsticks and a long-handled steel spoon. They all exchanged greetings. Akimi bowing often except to the two teen boys who must have been younger and who, when introduced, bowed to her. We sat down on the floor and joined them. Akimi was seated beside me and I was seated beside our shopping bag filled with gifts. As my eyes moved around the room, sizing up the situation but not aggressively, I wondered who all these people were, and I was certain that none of them was Akimi's Korean grandmother. There was no real elderly woman present. More important, however, were the men in the room, who were therefore in the presence of my wife. The silence was only punctured by the ramblings of the two-year-old girl, yet everyone's eyes were filled with both curiosity and emotion. Akimi's aunt, who was still standing, began speaking in Korean to everyone gathered and seated there. She began slowly, yet her voice was full and very expressive. 
As it rose and fell, she began to use her hands. Then her eyes and her hands and her mouth were all talking at the same time. Her talk created a strange feeling in me. I could not understand or translate even one of her words, yet my soul was stirring. It was only 80 or so seconds before tears began to well up in the aunt's eyes. I had been so focused on her that only then did I realize that even the men's eyes were coated with moisture. Then the females were all spilling tears, while the males were able to hold their tears back. My wife was weeping and intensely gazing toward her aunt, who I was certain reminded her too much of her mother. Looking more closely at my wife's eyes, I believed that she somehow was seeing two women standing there, her aunt and her mother. Meanwhile, the two-year-old was rocking side to side, humming lightly, a kind of background singer-musician to the aunt's moving storytelling. One of the men stood and went to the aunt's side, laying his hands on her shoulders and caressing them even as she continued to speak. Then I knew he was her husband. He wore a crisp, clean, pressed white business shirt, no tie, and quality blue slacks with a rough leather belt and dress socks. His presence must have soothed her as the aunt's voice wound down. He began speaking. His voice was deep and expressive. The manner in which the Korean men maneuvered, the musical melodies of their language was different than their women's, yet still captured my ear. His tones revealed a change in the topic, I thought. He began walking his wife to her sitting place at the table. Akimi, her hair covered in a yellow silk scarf, began wiping away her tears with her pretty fingers and newly polished nails. Her gold bangles jingled some. She was the only woman wearing jewelry. When the husband sat, he said some more words to all and then was the first to pick up his chopsticks and pull from one of the food dishes. Once he began, everyone began eating. Each woman, including my wife, began skillfully using the chopsticks to choose and pick up bits of food from the serving dishes and place them into a dish for a male. The aunt did for her husband. Another woman did for the man seated next to her. Akimi began preparing my dish as well, yet one older man and the 20-year-old didn't have women. They and the two male teens served themselves. The two-year-young girl ran and tumbled and then pushed herself between the aunt and her husband. I assumed then that she was their daughter. It was after the food was finished that the seals on the green bottles were opened. The liquid began being poured into the glasses was clear, but I believed that it was alcohol. What had been soft talking between sets of people gathered became a much louder group conversation. During the drinks, we handed our gifts to Akimi's aunt. The two-year-old and two of the teen boys were moving around the apartment doing their own things now while the adults watched. The aunt unwrapped the gifts as though the paper and even the tape that it was wrapped with were precious. She folded the gift paper, paper nicely into an odd shape and placed it aside before removing the top box, the box top, and discovering a set of hair combs that Akimi had gifted her. She lifted them from the cotton they lay on, and Akimi began to speak to her aunt softly. The aunt's tears began to form once again. Then I had 
doubts about the gift that I had handed her, but it was already lying there on the table for opening. As she opened the second gift, she removed the box top and lifted one of the three books that I had given. She raised one up and looked at it carefully, examining the front cover and then the back. When she opened the inside flap and saw the photo of the author, Shiori Nakamura, her sister, who was known to her as Ju Yun Li, she cried out in a painful sound. I had thought she would be pleased to have something of her sister's memory that perhaps she had not discovered or possessed here in Korea, but I was surely wrong. Her husband removed the book from her hands, which held on tightly. He peered into it. Then one of the other men removed it from his hands, and he flipped to the photo also. He laid the book down on the table, dropped his head for some seconds, then stood up. The husband stood up, and the aunt continued to weep. Akimi looked surprised and unknowing. She looked at me, and then she stood also. I got up. Uncertain of the mounting situation, Akimi helped her aunt to her feet. Suddenly, the man who still held the book stepped over to my wife and placed his hands on her shoulders and began to caress her. I pushed him hard, and he was propelled backward and fell to the floor, causing everyone else to gasp. Silence fell. I looked down on him. Keep your hands off my wife, I told him in English as he lay there. He got back to his feet and faced me. Immediately, the husband of the aunt stepped between us. The husband said firmly, Jamgan manyo. The other man began speaking in Korean, boldly, his angry voice escalating. The two teenage boys emerged from the back room and froze in place when they saw and sensed the conflict. I pulled Akimi beside me. Say whatever you want, but keep your hands in your pockets, I told him in English. The 20-year-old stepped to the angry man's side. Now, the husband, the angry man, the 20-year-old, and the two male teens were all on one side facing off with me. It wouldn't be nothing for me to break all of them. I knew, and the man who had touched my wife was still mouthing off. The husband said to me in English, let's go outside. No problem, all men outside, I said, and that was my one condition. Either me and Akimi would leave from here together right then, which would cut their ties from her, which I knew they didn't want to happen, or all the men had to exit the apartment together. This was my Sudanese way. I would not leave my wife in a room unattended in the presence of these men whose role and relationship I did not know. The husband began speaking to the Korean males gathered. Only the angered man argued back, but in muted tones. He stormed out the apartment door suddenly, and all the men stepped into their shoes, picked up his, and then followed him. I turned to Akimi and said calmly, Stay here. I went out last behind them. They were piled up right outside the apartment door, waiting impatiently. As we began to move, I heard the locks on the door in the apartment across from theirs, and then the door was pulled open, enough for someone to see out, but not enough for me to see in. The angry man mumbled in his language all the way down on the elevator. As we moved through the lobby, everyone watched us. Outside the building, they watched some more. 
I walked behind them, following purposely and aside from the fact that I didn't know where they were headed. As we stood at the top of the steep hill, facing down, the husband stepped down first, and each of us followed. I suspected that the husband was trying to lessen the fire in the other guy with a slow walk downhill with a welcomed breeze blowing in our faces underneath a beautiful, deep blue-black sky lit up with stars and constellations. He needs to cool the fuck down, I thought to myself. It would be in his best interest to do so. Standing on level ground after walking down three steep hills, we were facing a parked police car with its headlights off and two officers seated inside. One officer called out some words to the husband. I checked to see if he was the same cop from yesterday, but he wasn't. The husband stopped and answered him, his responses sounding upbeat and calm. The cops seemed satisfied at whatever he was telling them and didn't make no moves. This made me get a speck of respect for the husband. He didn't start squealing to the police about there being a problem. He didn't play his trump card of me being the only foreigner and the only black man in their streets. Instead, he kept it moving and led us on a sharp turn down a curved side street. In the face of the police, even the angry man was silent. Maybe he had something to hide or some reason to distrust or fear the police, I thought to myself. In the middle of the block, the husband stopped and ducked into a plastic tent where other men were gathered, some standing, some seated. As I eased in, I saw it was an outdoor bar with no walls, a drinking spot. The husband said some words to the two male teens and sent them back out. I could see them waiting on the outside of the thick, clear plastic tent. From their interaction, I decided he was their father. So, in my mind, I put together that Akimi's aunt had a husband, two teen sons, and one two years young daughter. Ajuma, the husband called out. A woman rushed out, listened to his order, and returned with more green bottles of drink and a set of tiny glasses. Anya, he said to the men. They sat, but the angry man wouldn't. I was watching his hands. They were heavy and rough, his skin thick on both sides. The hands of a worker, I thought. His chest was broad, and his clothes were common, unlike those of the husband, who was definitely a professional behind the desk type. Chonen mayo nakamira. I introduced myself, and then held my hand out to the husband to remind him that they had all introduced themselves to my wife in Korean, but not to me. Sorry, I'm Kim dong your wife's uncle by marriage. He is my brother, Che Hua but he doesn't speak English. He is my friend, Jang Jung-oh, no English, he said, introducing the angry guy. I extended my hand to him. He knocked it away with his right and grabbed a bottle from the table behind him and took a swipe at my head. I leaned left and punched with my right and broke either his nose or his blood vessels. He ignored his blood, didn't wipe it or chase it, and took the punch like his head was made from steel and had been slammed with force many times before. He lunged at me. I was quick, dodged and pushed the flimsy table toward him. Everyone seated behind where I was standing scattered instantly. I grabbed a set of steel chopsticks from the table and held them like shuriken. When he came at me again, I would poke them in his lungs or kidneys or just gouge out his eyes but he didn't charge again. 
he picked up a wooden crate and hurled it at my head instead. As the Ajuma woman yelled and complained, I blocked it with my right arm and a piece of wood broke off as the crate crashed to the floor. The 20-year-old and Dong Hua and Che Hua tried to subdue the angry guy, but he slung them off and they fell to the floor. That caused the two teens who had been posted outside the tent to rush in toward the angry guy. I knew they were about to be tossed through the air. They were lightweight and obviously untrained, with hands that looked like they had been served their entire lives and had never labored for nothing. Instead of them attacking the man who had just tossed their father and uncle, they got down on their knees before him and in begging tones asked him to stop. The 20-year-old came over to me and held his hand out to relieve me of the chopsticks. I kept my eyes on the angry guy who was giving way to the two begging teen boys. Just then, the angry guy bent over to help Dong Hua and Che Hua stand back up. When Dong Hua accepted his hand, I laid the chopsticks down on the table. Akimi's uncle, Dong Hua, began cleaning off his formerly white shirt and standing up the crates and setting the ladies' bar back in order. She stood off in the distance, watching as though she had seen this type of thing more than a few times. Dong Hua pulled out his wallet and walked over some wan and handed it to the woman, which seemed to satisfy her. She handed him some napkins for his friend's bloody face. I could see that in personality, Dong Hua was like my best friend, Chris, the type to smooth out conflicts and work hard to avert a crisis or a murder. He set his guys up with drinks and pointed his sons back outside. I wasn't sure if they were keeping watch or being thrown out because of their ages. Then Dong Hua walked my way and said in English, you have some things in common with Jung Oh, and Jung Oh has some things in common with you. I heard him, but it didn't mean nothing to me. I still had my eye on Jungo, who sat throwing back drinks from a glass so tiny I wondered why he didn't just drink straight from the bottle or dump it all in one mug. I knew that the more he drank, the better it was for me. He was already strong and slow. Once he became drunk, he would lose his balance and no matter how much confidence he had, he would be defeated. Anya, Danghua said, pointing toward the chair. I pulled the chair around so my view was toward Jung Ho, in case he made any more sudden moves. I sat. Even though we have gotten off to a bad start, we all have reasons to be friends, Dong Hua said. I'm not here to make friends, but I want to keep it respectful. Akimi is my wife. I'm here in Busan to meet Akimi's grandmother and to return Miss Ju Yun Li's ashes to her, the sooner the better. My wife's grandmother is your mother-in-law. Is that right? I asked him. Yes, she is, he said solemnly. Then, if you can arrange for us to meet her, Akimi and I can be on our way back to the United States, I said, observing Jung Oh's boiling energy as he turned back to look my way. Help me out here, Dong Hua said to me quietly with pleading eyes. My friend there does not know that Akimi's mother is dead. I listened and weighed the man's words. Is he related to her? I asked. He is Akimi's father, Dong Hua said.
I felt like I had been hit with a bomb and parts of myself were scattered throughout the bar. He is Akimi's father, replayed in my mind. It's true. He is really a friend of my wife's family from North Korea. He made it over here to South Korea and my wife made it over safely also only because of Akimi's grandmother. But my wife's younger sister, Ju Yoon Lee, she never made it. She disappeared from their North Korean home when she was 15 while her mother was here in South Korea arranging for both her daughters to escape from the North Korean government. Ju Yoon was never seen again by any of them. So you can imagine when they saw her as an adult in that book that you gave to my wife, how shocking it was for each of them. All these years, we prayed that Ju Yoon hadn't been killed by the North Korean government. We never received any information on her until we received the call from Japan a few months ago. The Japanese guy who contacted us was typical Japanese, annoyingly polite yet controlling, deceitful, and heartless. He wouldn't give us any information about Ju Yoon, but went to arrange for us to meet Akimi, who he said was Ju Yoon's daughter. When we asked why we could not also see Akimi's mother, Ju Yoon, he offered us only one option to meet Akimi for one day for only a few hours here in Korea, but only in his presence. We wanted to refuse, but my wife has been in therapy for many years because of losing her country, being separated from her mother for some time, and then losing her sister forever. I leaned over and hung my head my face facing the floor. I needed to think. What was the name of the caller I raised my head asking? The Japanese guy, I explained. You are asking the right questions, I see, he said thoughtfully. Then he sighed. It's a long story. When my mother-in-law, who is Akimi's grandmother, was first contacted, it was in the form of a business inquiry. She receives those kinds of calls often, people wanting her to come and lecture on the topic of North Korea. The caller was a Japanese woman who asked many questions about my mother-in-law, her services and fees. That was normal. However, being invited by a Japanese host or a Japanese college or university was not typical. In fact, it was rare. Then, more than a month passed by, the woman called us again and said she had some important information that should be shared in private. She wanted to arrange a meeting with us here in Busan. Well, we Koreans are accustomed to the process where, when we're doing business with the Japanese, they want to be invited into a series of preliminary meetings and entertained, and it all can become quite a burden. But if the deal is good... Their money is strong, their yen, so normally we endure the process. We met with her. Then, strangely, she wanted to speak only with my mother-in-law. We tried to convince her otherwise, but she wouldn't compromise. We allowed the woman to meet separately with our mother. 
After they met, my mother-in-law was upset, but refused to discuss with any of us what had been said between the two women. Another month passed. We received a call from the same woman. When my mother-in-law picked up, the caller gave the phone to the Japanese man, a Mr. Nakamura. My mother-in-law wrote his name down while she was still on the phone. Again, she was affected by these calls, became sad and quiet, but would not discuss. Finally, Akimi called our apartment, said she was Akimi Nakamura, Ju Yun Lee's daughter, and that she should be pleased, that she would be pleased to meet her grandmother. The problem was... Akimi was speaking to my wife over the phone. It was the first that my wife was hearing anything about it, but she collapsed after that call. In the hospital, at my wife's side was when my mother-in-law finally confided what had been happening. My mother-in-law admitted that she was angry and suspicious of both the Japanese woman whom she met with and the Mr. Nakamura whom she spoke to. She didn't believe a word they had to say. She didn't want to disturb any of us with this kind of situation, feeling that if it was a hoax, the disappointment would be too great. But once my wife, Sun Yoon, got involved, that was it. There was no way for any of us to ignore the situation any further. My wife, I said, Akimi doesn't know anything about this man being her father? No, not unless her mother, Ju Yoon, told her. Only her mother would have known, of course, and any person who Ju Yoon might have confided in. I need to be sure, scientifically. We need to get one of those paternity tests done. The Americans do that type of test all the time, I told him. He sat thoughtfully. Just in case Jung O's wrong and he isn't actually my wife's father, we won't tell Akimi. I don't wanna upset I don't wanna upset her, I said. I don't know you. But I can see that you love her. I can feel that. This is the same emotion I feel for my wife to protect her from every tear, he said. We can arrange for that test. Immediately, I said, Akimi and I are not going to be here in Korea for long. I have to return also to my mother and family, but it will be better for all of us to know the truth, he offered. We'll make the appointment tomorrow. I'll bring her father, Jung-ho, to the hospital. You bring Akimi, I said. I need a favor, he added. I know that you will be taking your Akimi home with you, but for my wife, Sun Yoon, for her health, could you... Allow her to spend some time with Akimi, just those two, maybe for two or three days. This way, my wife will not have to go through such a painful blow when Akimi leaves Korea. If they make some memories together, have some time together, when you take Akimi home, hopefully you will allow them to stay in touch. Dong Hua and I were two men in the same position. We both had beautiful wives. We both loved them a lot. We both wanted to remove a type of obstacle from their lives so that we could go on receiving sweeter love and attention from them and give them our love as well. We were both suspicious of one another and from two separate parts of the world and of different generations as well, but we were smart enough to tolerate one another. We both were sensible enough to know we had to. Okay, two days, 
but you need to lead us to her grandmother. Where is she? Soul, he said. Does she live there? I asked, feeling in, feeling misled. No, we all live together in the same apartment here in Busan. She is a very important woman. She travels around giving presentations about her former life in North Korea. She lectures at colleges and at government and corporate gatherings. This week is special for her. She went to address a group of North Koreans who have recently escaped and safely arrived here. She is part of a training course that allows the incoming North Koreans to adjust to a completely new way of life living here in South Korea. She is quite a smart woman, strong and very powerful. When will she return here to Busan, I asked. Next week in some time, he said. Does she know that Akimi is here in Busan to meet her? He hesitated and then admitted that Akimi's grandmother did not know. It is better if they meet face to face, especially now that you have informed us about Ju Yoon's ashes, he said. I understood. Dong Hua and I spoke together for two and a half hours. Piece by piece, I was pushing the puzzle into a complete picture and weighing every advantage and disadvantage I had. As specific thoughts came to me, I outlined what I needed him to do. He did the same. Before leaving the spot, he gave me his business card. He was a professor of history at Busan University. We agreed that I would contact him tomorrow and he would let me know when the hospital appointment was set up. At the conclusion of the tests, Akimi would spend the weekend with his wife. I had no objections to Akimi and her aunt remaining in contact for the rest of their lives. We put a drunken Jang Jung-ho in the taxi to his home address. Che Hua and his 20-year-old son rode in the same cab as well. Dong Hua and his two sons, who I now knew were 12 and 13, and me, walked the steep hills back to their building. How did you meet your wife? I asked him. I volunteered at the training center where she was receiving, where she was received and held by our South Korean government. They hold all of the ones coming from the North for some months. I saw her my first day working there, he said, smiling and seeming as though he was remembering. The war between North and South Korea is quite bitter. I don't know what you may know about it, probably nothing at all. You know, when we were young, we were told crazy things about the North Koreans by our school teachers, and even on the television. We were taught that they were stupid, illiterate monsters who wanted to kill every South Korean. We were told that the North Korean women, women were like men and not soft and beautiful like our South Korean mothers and sisters. We were told never to talk about the Northerners with one another. In fact, if any South Korean even mentioned North Korea, he would become a suspected enemy of our South Korean government and our people. If we encountered North Koreans, even in our travels out of the country, we were told not to even walk on the same side of the street with them. Most importantly, we were taught never to talk directly with any North Korean person. 
Some South Korean college students had even been accused of being traitors and spies for simply raising the idea that students ought to be allowed to discuss the North Korean problem. He inhaled and sighed. <sighs> when I first saw North Korean Sun Yoon, for me, she was the truth. And from then on, everything else I had learned and been told about North Koreans had turned into a lie. She was the irrefutable evidence. I found out that when you're in love, is the only time that you are willing to risk it all. If I had never seen and experienced Sun Yoon, maybe I would be just like most South Koreans unaware and afraid of my own people because we are separated by a border. Our governments drew between us, he said, placing his hand on top of his younger son's head as we walked. I was determined to marry her. I had to work so hard to change my family's idea about North Koreans. It was strange trying to prove that we should be friends with our own people. His face looked pained for some seconds. He was right. I did not know anything about the battle between the north and south of Korea. I preferred to ignore or maneuver around politics. My father dealt in politics, and he is an honorable man in a business that had no honor. Yet, even in the Sudan, I did know that there were bitter battles between the north and the south and the same as it was for the Koreans. But I was like Dong Hua in this way, I guess, or maybe more like his sons. My father was born in the south of Sudan. My mother was born in northern Sudan, and according to Uma, theirs was a forbidden love, a Sudanese epic. Your Japanese name will not be popular here in South Korea, Dong Hua said to me, suddenly interrupting my thoughts. Your true name would be better. If you knew the history between the Japanese and our Koreans, you would understand why. Oh yeah, was all I responded. Even Akimi should have a Korean name. That would be better, he said, not looking toward me and not seeming to be looking for a real response. Her mother, Ju Yoon Lee, named her Akimi, I said. Ju Yoon had no choice. I know that without ever having met her, Korean mothers will sacrifice everything for their children. Ju Yoon accepted the Japanese way, I'm sure, because she was carrying Akimi in her womb. All mothers will sacrifice everything for their children, I corrected him, thinking of my Uma. Ask me one day before you leave about Jung, he said. Jung, I repeated. Is that a person, I asked him. No. Some other time, he said. You are here in Korea now. Keep your heart open. When you and I speak about Jung, you will know then that Korean love is unlike any other because we have Jung. Are you the only one in your family speaking English? I asked him. All Korean students are learning English. Most don't use it or have the confidence to speak it with foreigners. I speak Korean because it is my mother tongue. I speak fluent Japanese because it is my enemy's tongue. I speak fluent English because it is my money tongue. 
We both laughed as his sons stared, searching for our meaning.